0: Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the. Please wait a moment. Well, the relationship between us and potatoes and all of the crops that we eat actually is quite complex because in effect it's a symbiotic relationship. It's a relationship we depend upon them, but they also conversely depend upon us. And so we have a dependent relationship in that that we eat them and we cultivate them and keep them in a way, but also we share quite a lot of genes with potatoes as well. I'm Sandy Knapp, I am the head of algae, fungi and plants at the Natural History Museum and I work on potatoes and their relatives. Well, the history of domestication is often lost in the mists of time because plant domestication in particular often happened before there was people were writing things down, and particularly for things like the potato, which came from cultures, which are Andean cultures, which didn't have a written tradition. It's much more of an oral tradition. So I think what people have found out using genetics and biogeography is that potato domestication occurred somewhere in southern Peru, northern Bolivia, around Lake Titicaca, somewhere. And people brought something that created tubers into cultivation and then, and then selected those things which had the tubers which were better and better to eat. And so essentially because potatoes are a vegetatively propagated crop, so you plant seed potatoes from the potatoes from the year before, they're genetically identical. So if you have something that tastes good, looks good, easy to cook, you can then propagate it vegetatively year after year after year. Domestication of of plants has actually one of the major major changes in human cultural evolution was the domestication or the bringing into the service or the development of this symbiotic relationship between us and other organisms, in particular the agriculture. It concentrated people in particular areas. People no longer roamed around in areas, so it ended nomadic ways of life. It, it, it created kind of cities, civilizations, conurbations of people, and, and it basically set up civilization the way that, that we know it today. And here's the discovery. Roger roll,
1: Discovery. 10, 9, 8, 7, six, five, four, three, two, one. Zero, zero, and lift off. send plants along with humans uh, on long-duration missions to Mars, for example, or, or other uh, bodies in the solar system, uh, if you bring plants to sustain humans, um, it means you need to understand really well how they behave in a wide range of conditions. You need to understand what will happen if, for example, light goes out for two days. Are you going to lose all of your plant production? Uh, are you going to not produce enough oxygen and then suffocate? Okay, Houston, we've had a
2: problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem.
1: My name is Lucie Poulet. I've been studying how plants grow in space. That's to say how to translate growth mechanisms of plants in equations and then look at what happens when gravity is lower than Earth gravity. So what happens when we grow plants in low Earth orbit, for example? What happens when we grow plants on the Moon, on Mars, etc? To choose plants to go to space, the first scientist who, who thought about that established a list of criteria. And if the plants answered, to these criteria, then they were chosen as candidate plants for space. So the criteria among them were the amount of resources you need to grow these plants in terms of light, in terms of water, in terms of nutrients. Then you have also the life cycle of the plant. Does it take 30 days, a hundred days or more to grow it? You have also the criteria of what's the nutrition. Is it mostly minerals and vitamins? Or do you have also carbohydrates, proteins, fats? Then you have ease of growth. Can non-botanists grow these plants? Because in the end, it's going to be astronauts growing these plants and maybe none of them are botanists. If you are to grow plants on another planet or in space, the safest option is to use hydroponics, which is um, growing plants in um, in a solution with water and nutrients. The life cycle of a potato is about 100 days, so it would take about 80 to 100 days to fully grow potatoes, like the bulb that you can eat, the tuber, and then hydroponically, you would have uh, this uh, tuber of the potato developing in your uh, hydroponic buckets. The hydroponic system is basically a reservoir where you circulate water with nutrients. The roots of your plants are uh, soaked in this solution. So uh, the clue to hydroponics is to really recirculate your solution with a pump all the time. So you have this reservoir and you have an inlet of water and an outlet. And you make sure the solution is really renewed regularly. In terms of ease of growing, it's it's a technique, but it's not impossible to learn at all. In potato, you only eat the, the bulb and you don't usually eat the leaves. So again, you you grow a huge plant with a lot of leaves and you don't use them. But it's counterbalanced with the nutrition value because you have a lot of carbohydrates in the potato. And in the potato, carbohydrates is one of the basis of, of human diet for a balanced diet. You need about 50 percent of carbohydrates in your diet. And in terms of uh, of size, you can grow potatoes really close to each other, and you can you can have potatoes that are not growing really tall. When you grow potatoes in your uh, in your garden, you see uh, that they are not. They're not tall plants, it's not like uh, tomatoes that can go uh, several meters high. So you you can really grow potatoes without taking up too much space.
2: In interstellar travel, you lose the connection with Earth. You can't rely on Earth anymore. You need to be self-sustainable. You need to be able to survive on your own, and you need to be able to solve problems on your own. I'm Angelo Vermeulen. I'm a space systems researcher. In my current research, I'm actually exploring possibilities to rethink interstellar exploration, but from a biological perspective. So, we're building um, a system that grows and adapts itself using 3D manufacturing. The idea is that the 3D manufacturing allows the, the, the spacecraft to grow and evolve over time. When you're doing 3D manufacturing, you really need printing material because you're traveling with very high speeds when you're uh, doing an interstellar mission. Breaking and looking around for some resources around you is not, really the, is not really possible. So you need to have all your resources on board. And that's how we ended up with uh, exploring the possibilities of developing an asteroid starship. The concept that we're developing, the, the asteroid is actually gradually being hollowed out. That's where the mining happens. Gradually, over time, materials are being mined from within the asteroid. And with those different materials, the architecture is being, is being built. But At the same time, other components of the art of the asteroid are used to create and maintain a living ecosystem inside of the starship. We're working with a generation starship so the human population is allowed to grow. You can't just build the facilities to house more people and forget about the system that actually needs to keep them alive when we're talking about food and oxygen. So you also need to expand the space for the biological life support. (coughs) On one hand, there is the regenerative ecosystem, the Melissa-based system, which keeps people alive. So it's all very much focused on crops. Once the potato is digested, the people living in in the shed will produce all kinds of waste. We're talking about CO2, but we're also talking about all kinds of toilet waste, and we're talking about sweat. These are all things that can be captured. These products are gradually decomposed using three subsequent bioreactors, each time with a different type of microorganism. And in the first compartment, what happens is fermentation. And then after the fermentation, the remaining products are moved to a second bioreactor, where things are broken down even further. And then they end up in the third and last bioreactor, where ammonia is turned into nitrates. The plant compartment receives the nitrates from the last bioreactor and also the CO2 that has been produced both by the astronauts but also by some of those bioreactors. So the crops that are grown produce both the food for the astronauts and oxygen for the astronauts. Potatoes are part of that. These are being eaten by the astronauts. The astronauts produce toilet waste again and CO2, and there's sweat coming out again. That goes to the first bioreactor and the process starts again. Now there is, of course, a limit to the mining of the asteroid. The asteroid is also a limited resource, just like Earth. So there is an end to the the growth. But once the system is stable, once you reach a certain size, you can decide not to grow anymore. And then you could theoretically keep cycling over and over again, just like what happens in a regenerative ecosystem like Melissa.